This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. This is Dave Iverson. 30 years ago, John Paul Furman was an accomplished young journalist working for the BBC when he had the opportunity to come to the United States and work on the PBS science series, Nova. Paul Furman's first documentary film was called The Case of the Frozen Addicts, the story of what happened when a group of young drug users in the San Francisco Bay Area took a botched version of a synthetic form of heroin that gave them instant Parkinson's disease. The film launched Paul Furman's documentary career, and he went on to become one of the most respected science journalists in the world. But five years ago, he began to experience some troubling symptoms, symptoms that led to his own diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Now, John Paul Furman has written a brilliant new book called Brainstorms about the history of Parkinson's disease research and the race to unlock the mysteries of the brain. We talked recently about his experience with Parkinson's as a journalist, author, and patient, beginning with the moment of his own diagnosis. Well, I remember that day. It was a rainy February day in 2011 when I'd been referred to an Oregon movement disorder center because I had a tremor in my left hand. But I, before I went, I was convinced this was not a serious problem. My mother had a thing called essential tremor, which is a non neurodegenerative condition, benign, and I I was convinced I had that. I was examined by a neurologist, and he confirmed within 20 minutes, he said, you have Parkinson's. It was very mild, but um, it would get worse in time. And I was plunged into a state of shock. I wish I could say that I behaved in a sophisticated way because I knew something about Parkinson's, but I behaved the way I think many people behave. I went into the stages of grief. I, I sort of denied it for a while. But the most important thing, I I tried to keep it a secret. There's a sense of, if I could blend in with the world of the well, then it couldn't be too bad. And initially, I didn't want to associate with people with Parkinson's who who wore their condition as a movement disorder so visibly like a scarlet letter. I, I tried to keep it to myself. And this went on, I'd say... For about a year, and and it's kind of embarrassing looking back on it, particularly because I knew a lot of stuff about Parkinson's disease, but that's part of the way I think we cope with these changes in our fate, that once once you'd got this definition, something was going to be different about your life and, and your prospects, and it takes a while to come to terms with that. I think that's right. I remember for me, not only after the diagnosis, but... A year or so later, when it came time to make a decision about starting medication, this sense of, boy, if I start this, then I'm, I'm sort of in, in for the long run, you know, that, that I'll be taking this medication um, the rest of my life. And I think that's sort of sometimes a daunting prospect to come to terms with. Absolutely. And I, I think it was like a year later, I found myself, I went down to visit with Bill Langston, who was the neurologist who I'd worked with on the case of the frozen addict story some 25, 30 years before. And we spent an afternoon in his garden in Los Altos Hills talking about all the developments that had happened in Parkinson's disease research in the last 25, 30 years. And I sort of came away from that meeting realizing that my destiny, I I could no longer sort of avoid this. My destiny was to use my training as a journalist and my insights as a patient to actually write something and try and make a contribution to this thing that I'd found myself in because... Parkinson's was now my journalistic beat, like it or not. I was, I was stuck with it, and I had to make the best of it. 
And I'm glad you did. It's really a remarkable book, a wonderful book, one that anybody, I think, who lives with Parkinson's or lives with someone who has Parkinson's or is part of the research community, for that matter, would be well served by reading. You know, I sometimes think as journalists that it's sort of an occupational hazard that when you tend to look at things, even things that happen to you personally, at least I know this is true for me, as a, sometimes has a story. You think, hmm, you know, that might make a good story. Did you think about that? Did you think about, as you were just suggesting, I can use the skills that I have, and this is a damn good story? Well, it is a damn good story. I think the problem I struggled with for a long time was what voice I was going to put into the narrative. It couldn't be a completely, totally straight work of science journalism because I was the patient and people reading would be curious what I thought, but I didn't, I didn't want to write a memoir. I, di I didn't want this to be about me. And so I sort of settled on a medium ground, whereas I played the role of like a correspondent in a documentary, that, that I, was, I was there asking the questions on behalf of the reader. But every so often... I opened up and I said, I expressed what I was feeling about what the, the information meant for me, because the information wasn't just purely interesting information. It, it had consequences. Exactly. And I also think that this is a time when those of us in the, in the patient community, perhaps in the Parkinson's community more broadly, including those in the science community, we're a journalistic kind of no-nonsense exploration and approach is really important. I say that in part because I'm struck by how often we're confronted with headlines in the media about this breakthrough or that, or we're on the verge of a cure, Parkinson specifically, but of course this would apply to other conditions as well. And so often, of course, those aren't necessarily, don't necessarily prove to be that. And one of the things that I think is terrific about your book is that you take us through these moments that we thought were going to revolutionize, and then, of course, we learn that it's much more complicated than that. And it seems to me this is a time when all of us need those sort of um, tough observational skills. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. I mean... I like to use the term, there's a sort of conspiracy of hope that we all participate in, researchers and patients. We, we want to believe that progress is possible. But biomedical research is incredibly difficult to pull off. And, and so when I think of all the ideas which were promising 30 years ago at the time I made The Frozen Addict, that basically the disease was, was framed as a, essentially a movement disorder caused by damage to cells, dopamine cells, in a very small part of the brain. And all the strategies to protect those cells, to revive those cells, or even controversially to replace these cells with fetal transplants and embryonic stem cells, all those kinds of strategies have not really panned out. But we've got something else in place now. I mean, the understanding has moved on, and now we have a, a disease which is framed much more as a sort of systemic disease, which is where the movement disorder is merely the middle act in a three-act play. The disease is sort of going on before you get the diagnosis, it's, and it's going on after you get the diagnosis. And it's a much more sophisticated view of the, of the disease. And it's one that we, we as patients need to understand. We need to have a realistic view of what's, what's going on and what the possibilities are. Does it seem to you, John, as you look back over the, the two centuries of Parkinson's research, going back to the time when James Parkinson wrote his famous essay in the, in the early 1800s, 
that every time we think we have some sort of breakthrough, a built-in setback comes along with it. In other words, take the story that you made famous, the case of the frozen attic. We thought that we had in MPTP, this synthetic form of heroin, something that not only showed there could be an environmental reason for Parkinson's, but could create an animal model of the disease that we could research. And then it turns out that that animal model really isn't quite good enough because it doesn't really replicate the full disease. We think we come up with something called growth factors that will help and protect and nurture the remaining dopamine doesn't pan out in the end. We think if we replace the missing dopamine that that would help us. Turns out that's more complicated as well. Can you kind of put in a nutshell in some ways perhaps what it is about this condition that is proved so daunting, more daunting than I think we really thought maybe 15 years ago when we felt like we were close to being on the verge of, of success. Well, I think one thing is that the disease itself, it's kind of easy to see why it's been defined as a movement disorder because that's the most noticeable thing about it. And when James Parkinson walked through the streets of London at the early 19th century, he, he could see people who walked differently from the crowd. And, and so I think part of the reason is that by the time people start to exhibit these movement disorders, the, the pathological process going on in their brains and bodies is already pretty advanced. And so I think these early methods fail for several reasons. They fail partly because they're very difficult to do. You've got to get, if you're replacing dopamine cells, you've got to get them in the right place and they've got to survive. But partly they failed because the, the damage to the regions of the brain was already quite advanced. So by the time people like you and I start exhibiting tremors and problems with movement, the process is already advanced. And, and now I think the new idea that really these processes are going on maybe decades before you get a diagnosis as Parkinson's disease. And, and that, that creates a sort of a a kind of a problem because you need that's why everybody's looking for what are called biomarkers you need a way to diagnose the condition before the condition really manifests itself and to try and intervene early and so i think it's it's quite a profound sort of change i think the other thing is the genetics has been so surprising by by coming up with these these very rare families which have a, a completely non-typical form of parkinson's disease like the contorsi kindred where 50% of the descendants acquired Parkinson's disease. Nobody's saying that's what you or I have, or most Parkinson's are like, but you get insights into how it could work. And, and that led to the discovery of, of the role of alpha-synuclein, this sticky protein that misfolds and is, is, a, is a major component of Lewy bodies, which had always been recognised in pathology as being associated with people with Parkinson's. And this, this new theory, everyone's excited about it, just like they were excited about neural grafting. And it, of course, could turn out to be wrong as well. And that just, that's just goes with the territory of biomedical research. It's, it's really hard to do. And you get really excited about the clues that you get. And you work on what you can. But it, it may turn out to be incorrect. For you, was there... A, did you ever have, John, a kind of aha moment as you were writing this book about what it is we're faced with and what the way forward may be. I don't mean in terms of the actual science, of course, but just that we do at least now have, as you suggest, this kind of larger framework that 
we understand, we think, something about what makes the dopamine cells go missing, that it is this sticky protein. We've learned through the genetics that even if you have a, an extra one of these alpha-synuclein-making genes, that that's enough to give you too much alpha-synuclein and give you the disease. That, that are, it, we finally have now begun to, if we haven't, we haven't filled in all of the spaces in the picture, but we have, we have a frame, at least, that makes sense. Is that, is that right? Yes, so, so, so I, I agree. I mean, so what you have is there are agents being developed for the clinic now to try and remove some of this, this misbehaving alpha-synuclein. So the prospect for patients would be if you don't have the disease and you had it and you were, you were given this before you got the motor disorder, you could prevent it. If you had the disease like patients like you and me, you might be able to stabilize it or, or stop it or slow it right down at a stage and stop it progressing from even further to go into to causing cognitive impairment or dementia. And, and then I think the other thing to remember, Dave, is that um, in addition to these disease-modifying strategies, which are the sort of the holy grail of biomedical research in Parkinson's, there's a lot you can do with symptom modification. And I think we're very fortunate as a community to have levodopa, which... Before levodopa was in extensive use, Parkinson patients tended to last only about six or seven years. And now we have many colleagues who, many fellow Parkies who survived 25 years or more with the disease. I think also we now know that the role of exercise is very important and you can make a huge difference to how well you live with Parkinson's. And even if you're not effectively sort of slowing the course of the disease you're you're slowing the course of the disability and living well and then the third thing which i i think and i know you agree with me has got a, a great future is the role of deep brain stimulation which has been a bit of a hit on a miss thing so far but I, i'm sort of convinced that brain circuits going wrong um, which are downstream from the whatever cellular damage is is going on in the brain that there, there's potential to do something about that and to intervene and, and, and sort of t to moderate some of the downstream symptoms. And so from a Parkinson's patient, anything which slowed or stabilized the condition and helped you cope with the symptoms better is, is a plus. I mean, if you've got a progressive disease, a fight that you're not likely to win, then you'll take anything which slows down the eventual end of that process you know so i i would t if, if i could be stabilized where i am now even though i've i don't have all the faculties i had before i got diagnosed that would be great with me as i'm sure it would be with you exactly let me ask you finally john about um something that's more amorphous and that's the question of of attitude and and the role of hope you commented earlier about that some of us all kind of engage in this conspiracy of of hope, and I think that's true. I also think, and I think you agree, that the role of hope and attitude is actually quite critical to how we all go about contending with this condition. And you write also at the end of the book about how Parkinson's is is a, a life sentence, and the question is really, what do we do with that? You know, what do we do with that life sentence? Can you say something, John, about? how you view that life sentence about the role of hope and about now that you've completed this um, wonderful work of journalism, how you see your own life 
going forward and the and the hope that you do feel well it's a real it's a real challenge i think even without parkinson's retiring is a challenge for people they've got to find meaning in their life they've got to find a reason when they get up in the morning to do something but with parkinson's it's it's even tougher and i i think one of the one of the greatest things about that i've got out of writing this book is is meeting other patients because i think we we need each other as as a, as a sort of community of of patients where we have a disease which is progressing slowly and so we can on some days some of us will be having bad days but others won't be and so i think we need to encourage each other but it's a struggle i mean it, it's it's a struggle because it's it's a it's a progressive disease and and i think if we took a snapshot of everybody who had parkinson we'd we'd find people at all different stages you know just being diagnosed in a depression because they they're, they're coping with the grief to people who are becoming you know more active and, and participating in their community and maybe feeling more positive to to ones who are at the end of their life in a wheelchair and feeling rather desperate because they they can't do very much so i i think objectively this is a real challenge we've got to face but without hope it's it's much worse i mean i think i think you've got to keep you've got to find ways and i think the best place to find this is in the community with other other patients because we are a remarkable community you know if you remember at the world parkinson congress in montreal you know there were astronauts there were all kinds of astonishing people appearing on the stage including the canadian patient who just won the amazing race canada a patient with parkinson and and all those things kind of give us hope and give us inspiration to keep going well i just want to say john uh that as always it's it's been a great pleasure talking uh with you but i i think it's fair to say that your book also provides that sense of of both the challenge and the struggle in that sort of no nonsense way that the best journalists can provide but also a sense of of where we can go and where our future may be. And and with that, I know I, I take uh, great hope as well. So I want to thank you for um, talking with me um, and for writing this book. It's a great contribution, John. And I, I on behalf of everyone in our community, I, I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Dave. Thank you. That was journalist and author John Palferman, whose new book is called Brainstorms, The Race to Unlock the Mysteries of Parkinson's Disease. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.